You're listening to South Asia Sphere from Himal South Asian, a bi-weekly roundup of what's been happening across South Asia. This episode was recorded on the 11th of July 2023. Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our fortnightly roundup of news events and regional affairs. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleague and fact-checker and researcher Saheli. Hi Saheli. Hi Raisa. So this episode for our big stories we're going to be talking about crackdowns on freedom of expression for online publishers and activists across the region and Pakistan's staff level agreement with the IMF and Sri Lanka's domestic debt restructuring. In around South Asia in 5 minutes we're talking about Myanmar hearing Aung San Suu Kyi's appeal for a shortened sentence. Nepal becoming the first South Asian country to register same-sex marriages, incidents of mob lynching in Bihar and Maharashtra, the impact of monsoon rain in India and Pakistan, and the arrest of four Tibetan students as they tried to escape to India. So let's start off with what's been happening in Kerala. Now in Kerala for the past 2 weeks there has been this kind of crackdown of freedom of expression which has actually extended across the region as we'll get into in a bit. On July 3rd Kochi police raided Malayalam news portal Marunathan Malayali's office as well as the residences of several staff members and they even raided staff members relatives and friends houses as well. Now several laptops, cameras and the phone of at least one journalist were seized in these raids. This was all in relation to a video that the Kerala High Court said insulted Kunnathunad member of legislative assembly PV Srinijin, his father and several unnamed judicial officers. On July 10th, the Supreme Court heard the editor of the portal Sharjan Skaria's plea for anticipatory bail. Meanwhile, on the 10th of June, Kerala police named a senior woman journalist at Asianet, Akilananda Kumar, as an accused in a defamation case which was lodged by the Students Federation of India. This is the student union arm of the CPIM party. The Kerala Union of Working Journalists has called the case an attempt to stifle independent media. Both these cases have put the ruling CPIM party in the spotlight. In Myanmar on June 28th, the Western Yangon District Court sentenced Thong Win, the publisher of the Irrawaddy, to 5 years in prison for sedition and also imposed a 100,000 kyat fine. Win was initially charged with violating the Publishing and Distribution Act for allegedly publishing news that negatively affected national security, rule of law and public peace. The committee to protect journalists called the sentence punitive and unjust and called for a reversal. In Sri Lanka, activist Tarindu Uduwaragedara, who owns the YouTube channel Satahan Radio, was summoned to the CID to record a statement about comments made around the arrest of comedian Natasha Idrisuria. Now she was arrested initially under the ICCPR Act and was recently granted bail. And in her case the Colombo High Court noted that the joke that Natasha made that led to her arrest could not be considered as inciting national or religious or racial hatred and even noted that the ICCPR act was being implemented in a manner that was contrary to its intended purpose. But despite this 
those who condemned her arrest, including Uduwara Gedhara, were still subject to questioning, especially those who were participating in the protests around Sri Lanka's economic crisis. Now, what all these instances have in common is the use of legislation to target and impede free expression, including online speech, and this was particularly used to target journalists and activists across the region. The International Monetary Fund has reached a $3 billion staff level agreement with Pakistan for a standby... We held a broad discussion on the debt restructuring program. This debt restructuring program will not affect any bank deposits or the banks in the country. We see the Samurti benefit until now were not added to the Aslasma welfare benefit program are protesting. On the 30th of June, Pakistan reached a staff level agreement with the IMF to unlock $3 billion US dollars worth of funding. This funding was reported as coming at the nick of time, as Pakistan remained on the edge of default. Now, there were some positive signs in the stock market and with the Pakistani rupee appreciating against the dollar. But there are still a lot of issues to navigate. So Moody's Investor Service and Fitch Ratings both said that Pakistan will require significantly more funding than what the IMF is giving them because the country owes $25 billion in this fiscal year alone. Now, there's also the fact that Pakistan is set to go for national elections in October. The IMF staff reportedly met with leaders from key political parties to seek assurances that they are committed to the objectives and policies under the agreement. So these policies include reforms to the currency exchange rate and austerity measures to cut down the government's spending. And these policies are never politically popular, understandably given the impact that they have on people who are already suffering with inflation and shortages. Another major hurdle that Pakistan will have to overcome is agreeing on how to restructure its debts with its creditors. This is something that Sri Lanka is in the process of, and it's proving to be as difficult as expected. So in early July, Sri Lanka's foreign minister, Ali Sabri, said that China won't be joining the official creditor committee formed by 17 creditor countries led by India, Japan and France. He said, though, that they're very confident about Beijing's support despite this. After meetings with the Chinese finance minister and the chairman of China's Exim Bank. But China staying out of the creditor committee means that Sri Lanka will have to negotiate restructuring the significant debt owed to China and Chinese entities separately. And this complicates the entire process, especially because all creditors will insist on being treated equitably. Meanwhile, Sri Lanka is also restructuring its domestic debt, though the government tried to make it more palatable by marketing the process as domestic debt optimization. The decision was still met with much controversy. Some questioned the need for domestic debt restructuring at all, while others questioned why only debts owed to the pension fund are being restructured, with debts owed to banks remaining untouched. Others also suggest that this is being pushed by international creditors. Another unpopular reform that's being pushed by the IMF is to the welfare scheme in Sri Lanka. So the government introduced a new scheme called Asvasuma to replace the existing Samurdi scheme. But analysis by the Centre for Poverty Analysis suggests that the Asvasuma scheme reaches far fewer families in poverty than Samurdi, 
despite an increase in poverty rate. They estimate that there is a higher drop in the recipients in the estate sector, which has higher poverty rates to begin with. And it concludes that though Samurdi was flawed, which is why reforms were pushed, the new scheme isn't any better. Now, protests were held island-wide against the scheme. But overall, Pakistan and Sri Lanka's experiences demonstrate the difficulties of countries in debt crises. And now for our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. On July 5th, Myanmar's Supreme Court heard final arguments in an appeal from deposed Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi against several convictions on incitement, election fraud and corruption as she sought to reduce her 33-year sentence. Lawyers also filed appeal arguments on behalf of former President Win Mint and Min Thu, a former minister of the government office, both of whom were convicted with Suki in the election fraud case. Now, Suki's legal team has faced several hurdles, including being unable to meet with her to receive her instructions for the appeals. Suki's supporters and legal experts say the case is an attempt to legitimize the military coup and present a facade that the military respects the rule of law while preventing her return to politics. While the military has made numerous references to an election, which will allow a transition to civilian administration, they claim, there's been no definite date set and many of the remaining parties, including the National Unity Government, are likely to boycott any elections. In an effort to elevate the LGBTQ community's experience in the tourism industry, the Nepalese government has come up with... The Court of Nepal issued an interim order on Tuesday, directing the government to establish a mechanism for registering marriages of same-sex couples. In Nepal, on June 28th, the Supreme Court ordered the government to immediately begin registering same-sex marriages, while amendments to the country's civil code are being prepared. This landmark ruling makes Nepal the first South Asian country to recognize same-sex marriages. And this is the latest in a series of progressive judgments from the Supreme Court, starting in 2007 with a judgment decriminalizing homosexuality, though implementation and broader societal acceptance has been slower. In May, we published a letter by Bojraj Pokharal, a former chief election commissioner and an influential leader of Nepal's civil society, translated by Niranjan Kunwa. In the letter, he uses the story of his son coming out to his family to call for social acceptance and full rights for the LGBTQ community in Nepal. It's a really powerful piece and worth a read. It's linked in the episode notes. At the end of June, there were two incidents of mob lynching of Muslim men in the space of just four days. Afsan Ansari was lynched in Nashik by cow vigilantes due to suspicion that he was transporting beef. Ansari was travelling to Mumbai when he was attacked. Earlier, on June 8th, three men transporting cattle were also attacked by vigilantes in Nashik, resulting in the death of 23-year-old Lakman Ansari, who was discovered two days later. On June 30th, it was also reported that 55-year-old truck driver Jaharuddin was killed by a mob in Saran district while he was on his way to a bone dust factory. These incidents come after a court in Jharkhand handed out 10-year sentences 
to 10 men accused of lynching 24-year-old Tabres Ansari in 2019. He later died in hospital. His wife said that she was not satisfied with the sentence and would appeal against it. In 2019, we published an interview with Vasundara Sinate of the Police Project, exploring how the National Crime Records Bureau had collected data for incidents of mob lynching in 2017, but then didn't release it, indicating that these incidents are only increasing. We'll link to it in the episode notes. Across the region, monsoon rain-related incidents have been reported. So, in Pakistan, 80 people died and 142 were injured, mostly in Punjab and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Lahore experienced record-breaking rainfall of over 200 millimetres, the highest in 30 years. Meanwhile, in northern India, at least 22 people have died in flash floods and landslides. According to the Weather Department, several districts in Himachal Pradesh received a month's rainfall in a single day. Delhi, Punjab and Himachal Pradesh have received 112%, 100% and 70% more rainfall than average in this monsoon season. It's been a little over a year since the devastating floods in Pakistan and India in the last monsoon season. We've published several pieces on the climate crisis and how it impacts South Asia in particular. Do check them out. So I recommend checking out the explainer we've published in 2021 called Count Your Climate Losses, which looks at reports assessing climate change in the region and how they look at climate damages. And our 2021 and 2022 climate event trackers to see how extreme weather events have been affecting the region. On July 4th, four Tibetan students were arrested while trying to flee to India Nonprofit Tibet Watch reported. A further four students are missing. The eight students, who come from second middle school in Chuchan, first tried to leave Tibet in March 2023, but were stopped by police. According to Tibet Watch, quoting an anonymous source, police had contacted the parents of the missing students and told them that they had crossed the border and were in the hands of criminal or blacklisted organizations. They had asked for 80,000 yen per child for their release. Locals suspect that the four are actually in police custody, with the police trying to extract a high ransom for their release. And now for our next segment, Bookmarked. Saheli, do you have any recommendations? Thanks, Raisa. Yes, I do. So, for this episode, I'm recommending Polite Society, a movie by British-Pakistani director Nida Manzoor. It's an action comedy following these two sisters, Ria and Lena, who have, I guess, unconventional career aspirations and goals, and they're trying to navigate it in this sort of hybrid British-Pakistani society. So Ria, the younger sister, wants to be a stuntwoman and Lena wants to be an artist. So she's recently dropped out of art school and instead of going back, she chooses to get engaged. And the movie sort of follows Ria trying to stop that from happening. It's a really hilarious movie. It's over the top and almost satire in some places, especially in the action scenes. And like the plot itself is sort of unashamedly ridiculous. But it's not 
just a ridiculous movie. It has a lot of, you know, charm and emotion in it. I mean, how it focuses on the relationship between the two sisters and how messy and complicated it can be. So yeah, it's a light-hearted, fun watch that still carries an emotional punch to it, and I really recommend it. I'm Rhea Khan. Yeah, yeah. I am going to be a stunt woman. Yeah, yeah. My sister Lena is the yeah, only person who believes in me. When I help yes, I, really, I agree. I watched it as well, and it was a really fun watch. I liked how, you know, it kind of very subtly showed how difficult it can be to try to fit into what is expected of you as a member of a diaspora kind of community. And for example, I could really relate to the elder sister who was kind of emerging from a shop and just chewing on an entire piece of chicken and like the kind of <laughs> disapproving looks of the aunties passing by, you know. And if you live in this region, you will know how you know, the scrutiny of aunties can kind of impact your everyday life and actions. So I like those subtle little kind of humorous touches. And definitely, I really loved how they explored the relationship between the two sisters and how close they were, but also didn't shy away from how contentious and fractious that relationship can be. I really loved how it kind of showed the way they argued and kind of showed the almost violence of what they said physically as well as you know emotionally so definitely you would need to suspend your disbelief mm -hmm. to watch this because there are parts of it that are kind of unbelievable ridiculous kind of spectacular but if you can go in thinking that then it's just a really fun uh, watch and I also loved how it was kind of an ode to female rage and mm -hmm. <laughs> what it can <laughs> <laughs> what it can achieve just through pure rage and in that sense it kind of reminded me of this other film on Netflix I think it was called Do Revenge which was a teenage kind of coming of age high school drama which also was satirical and pushed it to a kind of hilarious degree so if you like that then I think you'll probably enjoy this movie and I also recommend watching it and on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Tune in to us next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to South Asia Sphere. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Himal South Asian social media channels to make sure you don't miss the next episode. Head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And please support our work by becoming a member. Check out our membership plans at himalmag.com slash membership.